Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 140 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my beloved husband Dylan is our sound recordist. Hey. All right. I have a few things we need to talk about before we get going into this podcast. Okay. Recently, this week on Instagram, or Bookstagram, which I've just discovered from this podcast. Hashtag. Hashtag Bookstagram. There's been um, a meme, I guess, a trend, uh, what would you call it, a chain letter? I think it's letter? more of a trend. Yeah, a chain letter. I would call it a chain letter. You know those <laughs> internet chain letters. Um, where everybody has been posting stacks of books um, in a rainbow. It's called hashtag Jen's Rainbow Challenge. And on Monday, the color was red, and then it was orange, and today's purple. So if you are interested in following on Instagram, you can see... The books that are on the to-read list, if that helps you to see them versus to read them on Goodreads, you can see the books coordinated by color. I've seen some of those posts. They're very well done, Bailey. Good job. Thanks. It's actually very hard to take pictures of books. You wouldn't think that it is, but... Yeah, no, I can imagine. It's the challenge part of the challenge. Yeah. I, did, I, I respect that, but I also hate how everything's become a challenge on the internet today. Like, it can't just be like, do this thing. It's like, the challenge. Right, like the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. Or the... But that was like the original one, I feel like. So it's like, that was fine. And I guess that was a bit of a challenge. They were challenging you to do it. Yeah, like it a, wasn't all that challenging no. to stack all the red books. Yeah. Andrew, I know you wanted to talk this week about bookmarks and what we use for bookmarks. Oh, yeah. Well, I had this thought... Um, when I was reading Let the Great World Spin because I had started it or intended to read the book a long time ago. So I'd put a thing to mark my place in like an, in anticipation of reading the book. And it was kind of a cool thing. It was the ticket stub to a play called The Wolves, which I saw in its Ooh. first run, which became a big sensation throughout the country and is one of the like most produced plays in the, in the country now. Um, so that's I was scary. like, oh, that's a cool thing to have like as a as a artifact. Um, and that got me thinking about what I usually use as bookmarks. And I tend to, as this suggests, use a found object of some sort. And I sort of obsessively keep that object with the book. So, like, I can go back to books on my shelves that I've read and there'll still be a bookmark in it, like, near the end of the book. And it'll be something cool. Like, I use boarding passes for planes or ticket stubs a lot. So, so found it, objects that also hint at your ultra-cool lifestyle. Whatever, <laughs> Toby. It's all cool. You just wish you were on a plane seeing a play. <laughs> seeing a play in the plane. a receipt from a restaurant. <laughs> I have a dedicated clear box of all of my bookmarks organized by style and type <laughs> and i literally have probably a hundred bookmarks and every time i pick out a new book i pick out a bookmark that goes with it well, and then cool. i put I it back in the that. box no that's great Bill. i, like I mean that. it's no, that, that's cool it's tremendously nerdy but it's it's <laughs> in a good way and then <laughs> and one other thing is that we've kind of referenced it but dylan and my wedding was book themed and so I made a lot of um, the escort cards where you saw what table you were at were um, people's names calligraphied onto bookmarks. So I have a bunch of those for the people that didn't show up for the wedding or didn't pick up the card. And then I had extra ones, so I calligraphied like my favorite characters' names onto them. So. Yeah. Um, as far as bookmarks for mine, I kind of do the same thing as Andrew, except it's usually just trash that I have <laughs> around my apartment. This got me thinking, so I actually just looked through a couple of books I'd read recently on my shelf, 
and things that I've used included a postcard from my college reunion, <laughs> um, a ticket stub to a Chicago Cubs game, and mm. the business card of my former landlord. <laughs> if you ever need to call him to get that security deposit back. Oh, I, I got my security deposit back, which was shocking. Oh. <laughs> so I have a question that might be controversial. What are your opinions about folding down, like dog earing a page and or using the cover of a hardcover, like the flaps as bookmarks? I'll jump in here and I'm ready for the hate that Thank I'm about you, to receive. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I dog ear. I, I figure if it's, I mean, I would never dog ear a library book or someone else's book. Mm-hmm. I know that that's not cool. It's somebody else's property. If it's my book, I dog ear it. I like it. Um, I like I don't want to like destroy a book when I read it, but I really don't mind it looking like it's been read. I admit that I'm sort of a recovering dog earer of books, and also I'd, taking this to a whole different level. Like in college, I would write in the books too, Bail. Like I'd make yeah. some, some marginalia. Sure, um, it's a great word. Yeah, it is yeah. a great. It's a great word. Um, I have intentionally tried to move away from doing that, but I'll admit, like, if I can't find my bookmark immediately, or, like, specifically, I've noticed this as we've started the podcast, if it's like, oh, there's a quote I want to remember here, I need my bookmark for marking my place later, I will dog ear the page. Andrew, it's okay. You can go back. Come come back to the dark side with me. We can, we can sit and dog ear together. I, you know, I prefer dog earing to what Dylan does and some other people, which is using like the flap of a hardcover as oh. this as the bookmark because inevitably once you get to the middle it stretches it out and i don't like that i see nothing wrong with that i support you dylan that's like kind of why the dust jacket is there mm. or it's just to keep the agree. dust out the dust out of what it's called a dust jacket <laughs> yeah that, that name also makes no sense as Sorry, we've as we've previously established i and a few of us take the dust cover off of the mm-hmm the book anyway while we read it so it's not really an option to me but yeah no i prefer an actual bookmark good glad that's decided (laughs) just decided wait hold on (laughs) so we all agree (laughs) um well speaking of that we have made the to read list podcast bookmarks and we've had some fun putting them around in coffee shops and things and if you see them around take one they're available in our online store for 50 dollars a piece (laughs) we went on a tour of independent bookstores in los angeles and I didn't buy any books. I did buy something. <laughs> Holding this up it. for Toby and Dylan to see. It is mm. a puzzle of book covers. This has bestsellers on it. We got Fahrenheit 451. Gatsby. Black Hole. Kill a Mockingbird. This is the sound of the puzzle. It has two Jonathan Saffron Fower books. Anyway, here's the thing, guys. If you're like me and you alphabetize your books obsessively and you know, create a thing to hold all your bookmarks, you might enjoy puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, I'll throw this out here. If you, if any listener wants some um, to read list bookmarks, email us. We'll, we'll send them to you in an envelope. Sure. Why not? Yeah, the to read list podcast at gmail.com. We'll give okay. you a free bookmark. That's right. So, Andrew, you mentioned that you had some shame. Yes, I do. Um, though <laughs> I do want to sort of caveat it in that... Uh, it's mostly Bailey's fault. So, <laughs> um, last Friday was my birthday, and happy birthday! Thank you. As a very generous happy birthday, <laughs> thank you, Bailey. Um, <laughs> as a very generous gift, uh, Bailey got me, and Bailey and Dylan got me a gift certificate to the Strand in New York, which <laughs> is a wonderful bookstore. 
um, that Bailey loves very much, and I do as well. Um, so I had some money to go buy some books, and I went a little wild. Maybe well, not only that, I, I gave you. Wow! I actually gave you maybe too much money, knowing that you would have to go wild. Twenty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> Just kidding. She was, it was very generous, um, and I actually went a little over it because I couldn't decide between two things at the end, so I just got both. Mm-hmm. So, I have a huge chunk of books to add to my list. That said, even though I have these books, and technically that means they should go on the list, I imagine I'm going to knock through a few of these independent of the list just because I'm really excited to read them. And it's a little different for me and Toby because we do have a longer time to read the book, so there's a little more downtime. So, All right. coming to the Who list... Who doesn't want or, to try and assuage their shame? Yeah, it's fair. I just want a clear conscience, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the books that I have uh, purchased are... Uh, this, seems, this seems like a good time for me to just jump in and say I have no shame. No shame whatsoever. No shame <laughs> that I'm uh, trying to play off is not mine. No shame. You know, just none. Mine is a puzzle. <laughs> All right, uh, back to it. Um, Exit West by Motion Hamid. The Complete Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Ooh, very, very good. good. Which is very good, and I don't know how I haven't read it. I've read most other tentpole graphic novels, which I definitely feel this falls under. Yep. So I just don't yep. know how I haven't gotten around to it. So I'm very ashamed of that, but not just, That's very but good less one. so now that I've bought it. The Unwomanly Face of War by Svetlana Alexievich. An Oral History of Women in World War II. Just well, a classic there. Yeah, that ends my streak of books that I've already read that you're buying. <laughs> <laughs> so that concludes the books I bought. And then I also received um, from my friend Lizzie a book called The Illustrated Compendium of Amazing Animal Facts by Maja Sofstrom, which is not really a book that I'm going to read. as It's mostly stories, but I wanted to give her a shout out. Quick taste of the book. Crocodiles do cry tears when they eat. <laughs> I want more information on that. <laughs> Is it like you regret? Have to buy the book. Support Majus Ostrom. Ants have mm. no lungs. <laughs> I feel like you should go on the streets of New York and just yell these facts at people. I agree. You're saying that as though I haven't already. <laughs> this week, Toby is going to be reviewing a book from his shelf. Toby, what is the book? The book is Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates. It is a beautiful book, just looking at it. It's a cool edition, yeah. Mine is a black edition um, with a kind of, like, looks like a silver nitrate photo mm-hmm. of uh, Monroe or someone who looks like Monroe uh, kind of looking away. You just kind of see the halo of her hair and that maybe she's wearing, like, a, a kind of dress. Um, and she looks, like, lit by, like, maybe stage lights. So, yeah, I'll just jump right into it. I mean, it's it's kind of a one-word synopsis, you know? It's, um, it's a novelization of the life of Marilyn Monroe, whose real name is Norma Jean Baker. Joyce Carol Oates has been very uh, straightforward about the fact that it's a novelization. Um, A lot of the facts have been bent, a lot of the stuff, we go very deep inside her mind, far deeper than you could, you know, say is factual, Mm because there's just no way to know a lot of the stuff that she kind of makes up about it. That being said, obviously she did her research and most of the events are things that actually happened. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what the book is about. It's just cool. her life um, from very early childhood um, until right before her death. So yeah, the book in general, um, it was fantastic. It was uh, incredible. Like literally one of the books that I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life. Um, wow. Not only because it's so good, but because it kind of touches on all these different aspects of American culture. And it kind of considers what, you know... It's just, I think all of us, I can honestly say all of us in America, you grow up 
thinking of Marilyn Monroe as like this otherworldly figure like she's more than a person she's like a myth that you hear about Mm -hmm. you know you see her everywhere I hadn't ever considered before reading this book um, that she was a real person like she is turned um, by people who had an interest in turning her into this into a commodity Mm -hmm. into something that was not really uh, a human I think I want you to read this book because I want to see if you think this is true okay I think this is by far the saddest and most depressing book I've ever read, and it blows the previous saddest book I've ever read, A Little Life, out of the water. I do not think that's possible. It is so possible. I, 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 just for people who don't know, the A Little Life is a book so sad that the cover of it is a man crying hysterically. He's in anguish. He's in, I mean, okay, there are not tears coming out of his eyes, but come on, listeners, look up the cover, and he's <laughs> clearly, like, sh- destroyed by... Yeah, anguish is more like it. I know a little bit about the life of Miss Norma Jean Baker. I do not believe that it can compare to the life of Jude St. Francis from A Little Life. Ooh, I really want you to read this book. Okay, I just right. want um, to say, as the uh, sort of neutral party here, both books can be sad and depressing and wrecking, and that's okay. We have to choose one! <laughs> this podcast is about winning, primarily. Uh, that's, what I, that's why I'm in it. Um, but yeah, so that, that's something I've thrown out. I, I, I consider myself, I wouldn't say a jaded reader, but I read so many books, it's kind of hard. You know, you, you don't get detached from books, but you know, you experience something and your tastes become refined and it becomes harder and harder to move you, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a, you know, a bummer about reading so many books. I do feel like, you know, we love them so much and we read so much of them and it kind of actually... Uh, ends up dulling your taste buds a little bit eventually. Do you guys ever feel that? I feel that specifically with um, thrillers and mysteries because mm-hmm. I can anticipate what the twist is going to be, having mm-hmm. read so many of them. How about you, Andrew? Absolutely. Totally agree. doesn't even need to just be books. It's the podcasts, mm-hmm. plays, stories, whatever, television. But yeah, and that's what sort of makes it special when something really stands out to you. Because you see yeah. so many things that are like huge themes that otherwise like <laughs> would be devastating and whatnot, but you're like, oh, okay, watch next episode. Yeah, so that's <laughs> so that's kind of why this book was so special for me because it, I mean, it was I absolutely loved it, but it was a trial to read. There are not many ups in this book. It is mm-hmm. bad news every page, <laughs> and and liter- I would read it in the morning, and it would take me a couple hours to shake it off. So yeah, it, it was a bit of a trial to read. That being said, I, I 100% recommend it, but that's what it was like for me. Um, and I'm actually really glad that I had the, kind of a deadline to read it, because mm-hmm. I think even though I really, really enjoyed it, it, was, it could be so painful to read that sometimes I maybe wouldn't have read it that day if I didn't have to. Yeah, I get that. Um, so if people want to read this book, just be prepared, you know? It's, uh, it's an intense book that will make you feel very intense feelings. So, th- I mean, there's so many themes in this book. Um, so it's about, you know, at the beginning of the book, we really see her as a child, as Norma Jean Baker, um, who is a person who considers herself to be and is someone very, very different from Marilyn Monroe. Um, she had a mother who was schizophrenic and who was in and out of her life for a couple of years when she was young. Um, and then she kind of got Norma Jean Baker back, her mother did, and they lived together for a very traumatic time because um, the mother was schizophrenic and, and just wasn't behaving in a way that was conducive to having a child. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, early in the book, there is a horrifying scene where um, Norma Jean Baker's mother takes her and there's, um, there's fires up in the Hollywood Hills. This is mm-hmm. back in the 30s, 40s. Big, big fires. So like houses are burning down and her mother is kind of edging onto a psychic break and she 
gets um, Norma Jean Baker in the car and they're driving around and they're trying to find their way up into the hills into the fire. She's trying to drive into the fire and all the police have all the hill, all the roads shut down because they're like, it's on fire up there. You can't go up there. Yeah. So she keeps driving to different roads that lead up in the hills and trying to drive them into the fire. And Norma, and Norma Jean is like, I think five or six at the time and she's just kind of like watching her and it's like that scary thing like you know you're a little kid and you something is wrong but you have no control and Mm -hmm. you it's also your parent so you think you know it can't be that wrong like it's my parent and that kind of leads me to one of the things about the book that i i thought of when i was reading it which is that it's almost edges on horror at times wow there's just like violence there's a lot of like she fixates uh extremely on norma jean's periods Mm -hmm. which were very intense like mm-hmm. they would lay her out for two or three days and in fact uh, doctors would prescribe her codeine mm-hmm. and so to kind of deal with the intense pain and that kind of began some of her problems with that but i want to read an excerpt this is not really from marilyn monroe's uh, perspective it's just like a chunk of really good writing describing los angeles it was a season of no weather too early in the summer for the santa Ana winds yet the harsh dry air blown from the desert tasted of sand and fire Through closed eyelids, you could see flames dancing. In sleep, you could hear the scuttling of rats driven out of Los Angeles by the crazed, continuous construction. In the canyons north of the city, the plaintive cries of coyotes. There had been no rain for weeks, yet day followed day, overcast, with a pale, glaring light like the inside of a blind eye. Tonight, above El Cayon Drive, the sky cleared briefly, revealing a sickle moon of the moist reddish hue of a living membrane. So that's kind of like L.A. in the early days of the fire that I just described. It also sounds like L.A. today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, With the harsh, the the pale glaring light, like the inside of a blind eye. I was like, yep. One more quote. This is Marilyn Monroe speaking about uh, the type of films that she's being offered early in her career. The studio only offers me sex films. To be blunt, that's what they are. The very title, The Seven Year Itch. My husband says it's disgusting and demeaning. Marilyn Monroe is this foam rubber sex doll I'm supposed to be. They want to use her until she wears out, and they'll toss her in the trash. But he sees through them. Lots of people have tried to exploit him. He's made some mistakes, he says. I can learn from his mistakes, he says. To him, Hollywood people are jackals. And this includes my agent and people who claim to be on my side against the studio. They all want to exploit you, he says. I just want to love you. And that, uh, her husband there she's speaking of is Joe DiMaggio who she had a very brief marriage with. Um, so there are a lot of thing, details I could go into about this book, but honestly, I don't want this podcast to be too much of a bummer. Um, <laughs> I really don't want it. Yeah. Uh, suffice to say, the writing is beyond beautiful. It's, it's an experience that will suck you in and leave you changed. It's that delightful feeling of realizing you love an author and knowing they have a large, um, like, they've written a lot of books. And so you're like, this is the rest of my life. I can, you know... I can read a book every couple of years by Joyce Carol Oates and I love it. I love that. That's one of the cases where I get a book like right when it comes out, when it's one of my favorite authors mm-hmm. that you know, no matter what, it's going to be good. Yeah. My favorite example of that is Terry Pratchett in the Discworld series. Mm-hmm. I, there's enough of those to last me the rest of my life, yeah. which is fantastic. And then also P.G. Woodhouse. I like Jeffrey Eugenides. I would yeah, read anything he writes. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Um, so I assume this is a five star and you're going to keep it a five star and I am going to keep it because my wife wants to read it. And, uh, but then I think we probably will donate it because somebody else needs to read it. We've both read it. I don't think I'm going to reread it. Donate it to me. Oh yeah. If you want it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just, yeah. yeah. Seconds ago I said you weren't going to take another book. (laughs) (laughs)
I mean, I have some facts, but she's like very private. Not in, I mean, she has a very active Twitter presence, and obviously you can find some of her thoughts there. She sometimes I did not know that. riles up um, some controversy on Twitter. Um, but I found this interview with, uh, with a website. It's with the creative process, and almost all of her answers are like two words, like literally just answering <laughs> the fact of the question. Here's one of the questions. In mm-hmm. Blonde, you wrote, if there was music in the scene, it would be a quick staccato music. Music also features strongly in We Were the Mulvaney's in many of your novels. So, is music important to your creative process? Joyce Carol Oates. Overall, probably not. But I feel <laughs> <laughs> that there is an appropriate essential music beneath some scenes. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, just a few more brief facts on, on Joyce Carol Oates. She said she'd been teaching in some academic setting since she was 22 years old, and she's now 80. I didn't know she was 80. I wow. didn't know she was 80 either. She's, she's still writing. Yeah, she's still writing. She came out with a book this year called My Life as a Rat. Yeah. So I don't know how, what more there else is to say except for to drop one more inter- one more quote from that interview here. Heck oh, yeah. do it. The creative process. You've written family <laughs> sagas, suspense novels, and books for young people. You've written about Mike Tyson and Marilyn Monroe. That's an extraordinary range. So what draws you to these subjects who on the surface don't seem to have much in common? And can you share with us a little of your process of getting in character when the character you're writing about has life experience, which is, which are vastly different from your own? Joyce Carol Oates. Really impossible to answer. I write about what excites and interests me. End quote. Wow, wow, wow. That poor interviewer. I know he's trying here. She's trying to be so specific. Can you talk about this thing? No. It seems like the interviewer really did their work, too. Like, yeah. All right, ugh. so Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates, five stars. Five stars. Woo. All right, well, guys, I want you to get prepared for my book. I am hyped. The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. Woo! Quasimodo. <laughs> <laughs> so Quasimodo, do it. All right. I'm holding up my book. It is a Barnes & Noble Classics, which I actually was Googling, and it might be worth some money because it was... Ooh. It came out in 2004, and they don't make them like this anymore. Uh, what? How would that be worth money? Because well, people <laughs> are buying the whole sets. Oh, they want to complete it. Yeah. Okay. And- so if the next episode of the podcast doesn't come out, Bailey sold it for a quarter of a million dollars More like $10, and flew to Aruba. But something. Um, uh, one thing I do like about it, speaking of bookmarks, is it has a little ribbon bookmark hmm. attached to it, which you can use, and it has those like gold pages. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so this book... The original title was Notre Dame de Paris, meaning, you know, Our Lady of Paris or Notre Dame of Paris. So this isn't about necessarily just the hunchback, you guys. Ooh. It's more about Paris as a city and more about Esmeralda. And Esmeralda in the book is called a gypsy. I'm not sure if that's the word that Roma people prefer to be called, but in the book she's called a gypsy. Um, she is only 16, which I think is Ooh. good to know. Okay. Um, it influences your interpretation but it's essentially about um people esmeralda comes in contact with and their reactions to her um all set around you know this time period in the 1400s when you know it's not so great to be a woman it's not so great to be different and the hunchback Notre Dame quasimodo who in the book is deaf which I think is very different from what you might think, certainly different from the Disney movie. I did not know that. Um, Also makes him even more separate. He is deaf, but he is not mute. He speaks very articulately um, 
Frollo um, adopts him. Frollo in the book is a uh, deacon, I believe, at Notre Dame. He's a church leader, whereas in the Disney movie, which you might have seen, he's more of like a magistrate judge type. Okay. But he's a leader. He adopts and raises this hunchback um, to become the bell ringer of Notre Dame, but he doesn't want him to leave Notre Dame. He says that you're a monster. Everybody would hate you. Um, at the same time as Esmeralda is dancing in the street and Frollo is seeing her and watching her and wanting wanting her, but he like, he won't even let women into Notre Dame. He hates women so much and the time hates women so much. So he's feeling very conflicted about that. And so that's sort of the basic beginning. And if you you probably know essentially what the novel is about, I don't want to get into too many spoilers. Is that accurate? Yeah. Is that, that good? That's yeah. great, though. I am curious. I don't want you to get into any sort of spoiler territory, but mm-hmm. aside from the general setup, and I, we're fighting against an obviously like Disney-fied version of it, but how different is what happens? Here's the thing: <laughs> is like I expected it to be completely different. Uh-huh. There's a lot of stuff that's in the movie that you wouldn't expect that's actually from the book. So there's a lot that is similar. The talking gargoyles. You know. No, there are is a but there's a scene where Esmeralda says she looked at Quasimodo and it looked like he was talking to the gargoyles, hmm. like as if like they were his friends but they mm. didn't talk back. Interesting. There's a lot like it was clear to me that the Disney people had read the book. Mm. There were some references. Oh, that's good. Like in in the opening scene, um, Quasimodo's mother, who is a gypsy, and in the movie she's a gypsy and she is running and she falls and she you know hurts her head and dies, and mm. that's not how it happens in the book but there is a character that that does happen to in the book so it Mm. feels like there are connections the ending is extremely depressing well it is it's a tragedy versus the disney version with that said i had heard of what the ending was and i was thinking oh god this book is just going to be a slog it's going to be so depressing but when you read it i found it incredibly moving oh so I don't want to say what happens but it doesn't end the way it ends in the disney version yeah i don't i don't know the real ending um, I just always have heard that it's yeah much more brutal and depressing than yeah. the, the Disney-fied version. This book I actually read really quickly. Um, the book, my copy I have is 650 pages. I read it in a few days. Whoa. Here's the thing. It's really good. Yeah? It's very good. It surprised me how great it was. Um, with that said, I think this is one of the few books where I've thought maybe I should have read an abridged version. Because there are parts that you can entirely take out. And the Disney version does that. (laughs) And, you know, I kind of respect that. Like, the whole first 150 pages, it follows this character, Gringior, who's like, he's not really all that important. Um, And then Victor Hugo will go on very long descriptions, literally chapters long, 30 pages long, where he will list the streets in Paris. Wow. So I'm just going to, like, give you a little... A little taste of that just so you can get a sense of what I'm talking about while you look that up I'm yeah. gonna say um, I have read and very much enjoyed um, the Count of Monte Cristo but it was in a abridged version but I love the abridged version because they literally I, I wish I remember what the edition was because it was one of my favorite things I've read but um, they abridged stuff and they put in a note they were like here's what you're missing yeah like not much like it, it's like there's a little side quest, and it goes on for 120 pages. It has no impact on the plot, and it's literally like they were just like, I'll just put it in there. I want to write this. This is fun. Right, and I think I was nervous when I first picked up my little pocket edition. I thought it was a bridge, and I thought, oh, no, it won't count, but it really counts. You're getting everything. So, yeah. for example, this is page 155. This is about a road, 
It crossed the water twice, under the names Petit Pont and Pont Notre-Dame, the second called on the left bank Rue de la Harpe, in the island, the Rue de la Balure, in the right bank, Rue de la Saint-Denis. Over, it just, it just like listing names of Jeez. roads. And you're like, I don't think this is important, Victor Hugo. And he's like, no, no, I got to give you a picture of Paris of the time. It almost sounds like he's like one of those people who's trying to write and do like his word count for the day. It's like, I only have 200 words left. <laughs> to list some street now. Well, he says, like, on, I think he does this be- on page 12. It begins with, if we, men of 1830, could possibly mingle in imagination with those Parisians of the 15th century and enter with them, pulled, elbowed, crushed into the great hall, etc., etc. So he is saying, like, the readers are 1830 men. And so he's wanting to paint a picture of the differences mm. between Paris then and Paris now. And it's like, I don't know if this is all of your readers, Victor Hugo. So he's imagining, like, Everyone who reads is going to be a Parisian and be like, oh, it was called something different back then. Oh, it was a different road. Yeah. Um, Andrew, how does your French accent sound? Perfect. <laughs> Sorry. Parfait. Parfait. Oh, oh, beautiful. So in that case, I am not good at skimming. This, I embraced the skim because hmm. I thought this is not that important. Skim over. And so that helped me get through it quickly. Yeah. And there are times when I think he does it purposefully. Like, for example, there's a very big climax and I will call it the attack on Notre Dame. Hmm. And he cuts away from the most climactic moment and goes to a different character on the <laughs> other side of the city, which is the king of France. Uh-huh. But he had not been in there before. And you're like, what are you doing? Oh my gosh, all the tension. But I thought this has got to be purposeful. Yeah. And then he gets you back up to it. But you know, you can skim through it a little bit. So I love this novel. It made me not so scared to read Les Miserables, which oh, is coming up, because sure. I liked his writing a lot, and I sped through it. The character descriptions are great. Dynamic action, dynamic um, climax. Like, I was speeding through this book, excited to see what would happen. It is also funny, mm. which surprises me. So, one, the biggest difference, not the biggest difference, one big difference is in the Disney version, Esmeralda falls in love with Phoebus, the captain of the guard, paid by Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. In the book, Phoebus is a terrible person. <laughs> He's just kind of like a user. He goes through all of these women. He has no interest in Esmeralda besides getting her in bed. So on page 382, he says, Do I love thee, angel of my life? cried the captain, half kneeling before her. My body, my blood, my soul, all are thine. All are for thee. I love thee and have never loved any but thee. The captain had repeated this phrase so many times on so many similar occasions that he delivered it all in one breath and without making a single mistake. So it, <laughs> he's funny and he knows he's funny and I, yeah. I, and I enjoyed it. You might, not, you might think, oh, the Disney movie added in that adorable goat, Jolly. <laughs> False. That goat is in the book. Wow. Right from the beginning, he is Esmeralda's sidekick. He is hanging out. He is dancing with her. He can do tricks. He can do math. He can spell Phoebus with blocks because she's obsessed with Phoebus, and so he learns how to spell Phoebus. First chapter is POV from the goat. <laughs> but it's a lot about hay. There is a there is a point in the book where the character Gringior has to choose between Esmeralda and the goat, and he can't decide. He, he loves he loves that goat. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to say, you can tell it from the Hellfire song. And I think from seeing this book, uh, from seeing this movie as a kid, this is the first example of toxic masculinity. I think <laughs> I can, uh, as a kid, I think this is the way I first understood it, where it's like, it is not her fault that you are obsessed with her, yeah. but you are taking it out on her. Oh, so he says, Frollo says, 
O oh, girl, have pity on me, thou thinkest thyself unhappy. Alas, alas, thou knowest not what misery is. Oh, to love a woman, to be a priest, to be hated, to love her with all the fury of your soul. So he's just talking like, your life might be on the line, but I'm the one who's really suffering right now. How dare you make me obsessed with you. Exactly. Yeah. How dare you. I loved Hunchback. I'm giving it four stars. I'm nice. not going to give it five because, you know, there are parts that you can skim. I imagine if you were to listen to it on Audible, that would get hard because it'd be harder to skim. <laughs> I think if you're going to read it, you should actually read the book or even an abridged version. But it holds up. I really liked it. And I'm definitely going to keep it. It's a classic. People yeah. will And it's pocket it. edition. Takes up no space. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. That's excellent. I'm surprised at uh, how close you said it was to the Disney version because, uh, you know, people love to be like, ha ha, did you know what's very different? Well, you know, I mean, it's clearly a lot of it is different. I was just surprised at how much of it was the same. Yeah. Well, Victor Hugo is an up and coming young French writer. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Victor Hugo was born in 1802 in France. Um, he has developed a reputation as one of the greatest artists of French history to that uh, and he is buried in the Pantheon in Paris next to Alexandre Dumas and Emile Zola. So throughout his life, he wrote a lot in a lot of different mediums. Um, English-speaking audiences seem to know him primarily through Les Miserables and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, but he is actually more uh, known in France for a couple collections of poetry he'd written. Um, oh. And he was also a very active politician serving like formally as a representative in the government in various different forms um, during the rather tumultuous time in history of uh, France in the 1800s, dealing with the fallout of the French Revolution and Paris Commune and all kinds of different things like that. He was actually exiled during the reign of Napoleon III. Um, He went to Guernsey um, during that time. That's actually where he finished Les Miserables. Because he wanted some cheese. (laughs) How dare you? I want to tell a story specific to... um, Notre Dame, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. So, and this is a rumor you're going to see if you look up, like, Victor Hugo facts. They're going to say that he wrote in the nude. But <laughs> it, it was like, but it's actually a more fun story if you know why he wrote in the nude. Because he did, okay. And let me just t- tell, let me just tell you. Basically, he signed an agreement to write the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but kept getting delayed through other projects and things like that. So mm-hmm. to make him adhere to a writing schedule where he couldn't get distracted, he had uh, people who worked for him, servants in his house, uh, take away all his clothes mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, le- and leave him in a room and just, like, take away his clothes so that he couldn't, like, leave the house because he wanted to go do something else. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, that's, ama- that's amazing. And he did like have a shawl he wore during it, but it wasn't something <laughs> you could go out in public in. Um, <laughs> so like at the end of the day, his servants would bring him back his clothes, and like he could go get dinner or whatever he wanted to do. But it's actually pretty smart. Oh, so it would nice. be just during the hours of the writing. Like yeah, to give him like, okay, so he wouldn't be distracted. They would they took away his clothes. <laughs> That's funny because when you say that fact just by itself, I, ima- I immediately imagine like such a passionate writer like must do it a buck naked. <laughs> but no, that makes no, more sense. No, no. See, that's the thing, and you know, I completely confess that I could be wrong here. But I read so many different articles where like that's what they would say. Like he was so passionate, he needed to feel the world. And then I found like actual like scholarly yeah. articles that were like, no, it was because he like literally knew he'd be distracted by like <laughs> going out to get lunch makes- if he didn't. Have them- <laughs> 
to do the no clothes challenge for his writing. <laughs> <laughs> the no clothes challenge. Um, I don't want to go much further than that. One other thing I will add, just because it came up in your review, Bailey. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that he was writing this, Paris was really falling into disrepair, specifically old landmarks of that time, and most specifically um, the Cathedral at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, his inspiration to write this book was to spur people to like care about these monuments and to renovate mm-hmm. these monuments. I'm going to literally read from Wikipedia, which is not what I want to do here, but I'm going to. <laughs> Victor Hugo began writing Notre Dame de Paris in, 1819, in 1829, largely to make his contemporaries more aware of the value of Gothic architecture, which was neglected and often destroyed to be replaced by new buildings or defaced by replacement of parts of buildings in a newer style. This explains the large descriptive sections of the book, which far exceed requirements of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There, there's yeah. parts where he's like, well, this is where we used to have a collection of statues of all the kings, but it's not there anymore. <laughs> What's actually kind of crazy about this is he was successful. Like, they can point directly to this book and the, like, fervor it caused to them renovating Notre Dame and restoring... Renovating is wrong. Restoring Notre Dame and restoring a lot of the uh, Gothic architecture of the area. It's cool to nice. see um, a book actually have, like, a real-world impact like that. You go, Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> um, one last thing I'll say um, is that... This was actually credited also as being one of the first novels that uh, makes room and uh, has centers characters from a variety of different classes, specifically the lower classes. And it's pointed to being an inspiration for later writers like Charles Dickens, because at the time it was considered it wasn't considered proper to like center characters who were poor or beggars because those weren't considered uh, characters of value. And he, he does a whole range like he goes all the way from beggar exactly. to the literal king. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what uh, something that was very um, something that was very new um, for the time, and something that people point to as having a lasting impact on literature. Guys, cool. it's good great. Research. It's um, it's good research, Andrew. I I really I think you would like it. I want to thank my friend Lindsay, my friend Lindsay from camp, who gave me this in two thousand five. What a strange last name. Well, I, I don't know if she wants me to say her last name. <laughs> Nice. All right. All right. Who is ready for a game? Oh, yeah, game. Who is ready for a game? I'm going to Esmeralda dunk on you. That was really bad. Roll over and die. Whoa. You are just having fun. Too bad the game is not actually related to Victor Hugo or the Hunchback of Notre Dame. We're going back to the first section for this week's game, which is called Joyce Carol Floats. (laughs) (laughs) So, this week's game, I'll be giving you a title of something, which is either a Joyce Carol Oates book or a winning float from this year's Rose Parade. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, uh, the floats at the Rose Parade each have a theme, um, which I noticed could be confused for, say, a book title. Are you (laughs) You have too much time on your hands. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Um, So last week, Bailey won. So Bailey, you can decide if you'd like to go first or second this week. I'll go first. Uh, just Toby kidding. I, I know. Book. I know this time. I know this time. I just... I'm gonna let Toby go first. Oh right. no! <laughs> Excellent. All right. So, I'm gonna say we're gonna do this one kind of more rapid fire because they are relatively short. First person to get five correct will win. And uh, I'm guessing that the correct response is either float or oat. Yes, that is okay. obviously the only way you can respond to these. <laughs> All right. Beautiful days. Float. That's incorrect. It's an oat. Bailey. Wild Saturday. Float. That's incorrect. That is also an oat. Garden Fresh. 
Float. That's correct, Toby. Toby has our first point. Yes. <laughs> Harmony's Garden. Oat. That is incorrect. That's also a float. Ooh. That's what I. That's what I would have said. <laughs> Wild Nights. Um, oats. That's correct. Toby's running oh, no. away with this. Tree Frog Night. Um, uh, float. That's correct, Bailey. That is a float. Yes. Mm. <laughs> a divine melody resonates in all. Oats. That is not. That's a float. <laughs> no. A carousel of experience. <laughs> um, oat. No, that's a float. What a kind of no. Oh my god. <laughs> Far out frequencies. Float. That's correct. Toby's almost there. Yes. Um, crossing the border. <laughs> uh, oat. That's an oat. Okay, Bailey's getting closer. Backyard harmony. Oat. Nope, that's a float. Wonderland. Oat. That's correct. Bailey has tied it I've up. Heard of, I've heard of that one. Ooh. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what you have and have not heard of. <laughs> true. Come on. The goddess and other women. Uh, oat. That is correct. I know that one. Oh, see? There you go. Come on. I'm a real oat head. <laughs> I'll take you there. Float. That is an oat. Ha Where are you going? Where have you been? Oat. That is an oat. And Toby's our winner at a score yes! of five to three. <laughs> Congratulations. Redemption. You're back on the board. Yes. Good job, Time to make Toby. an Instagram post about this. Not jealous. <laughs> Good game. Good game. Mm-hmm. All right, well, it's that time again. The, the choosing. So, the choosing. The choosing. The choosing. Well, Toby has 17. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Ooh. Philip K. Dick. Ooh. A.K.A. Blade Runner. Yeah, I'm very excited. This is, yeah, obviously, like Bailey said, this is the novel that Blade Runner is based on. Um, very loosely, as I understand. I have only read a full novel of um, The Man in the High Castle, which is a bizarre book but i'm really excited to read this i love uh, philip k dick um yeah i'm really excited i just before you pick i just want to say that i'm very excited and i want to say doing this podcast has made me less afraid of getting the classics Mm. like this one this hunchback oh dylan's looking at me like better watch out what you wish for (laughs) but this one like i was really scared of i was like oh god this is going to be horrible and i really loved it so well it's a good thing you say that bailey because you have number 114 which is not that at all (laughs) <laughs> you have The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon. Oh, yay! This is going to be a movie coming out soon, and I wanted to watch it before the movie came out. I've never heard of this book. Oh, it's a YA awesome mm-hmm. love story. Nice. So, it'd be very different from Giovanni's bear? Room. Do you know the bear fact? I don't know. I know the cover looks really cool. I think it's a romance between a young black woman and an Asian man. Cool. You got a good mix of classics and, you know, popular new in there. Cool. So, we've just finished The Choosing which is very exciting. However, next week we have a special guest episode. We have a very special episode. We have a special guest, Miss Talia Bolnick, who you'll meet next week. She has chosen a book off of my list, 1984 by George Orwell. So we're all going to be reading and reviewing that. Very excited. And then the episode after that will be Giovanni's Room and the Sun is Also a Star. All right, well, thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast. 
We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Two Read List Podcast and on Twitter at Two Read List Pod. And thanks everybody for listening. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us so, so much. It's just a tap of the button on that fifth star to the right. Um, and if you really want to help us, you can um, go ahead and write a review, which counts for even more. Um, and we will love you forever. As always, thanks to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. 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 books.